This is Bobby Tibbles. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and verses or 25 through 28. This is the NASB 1995 edition. Verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. I'm Byron Brash. I'm the pastor here. But this morning, what I would like to do is I would like to begin just with a few verses from 1 John. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. You can just sit there and listen to it. It's fine. Whatever you want to do, it's cool. Uh, Verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for why? Because God is love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Father, we thank you for this morning. We just thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, this morning is really a, a time of foundation, of really understanding what we believe. It's a time of uh, systematic theology and doctrine. Lord, I just pray for this morning... Compiled with last week and this week, I just pray that we would be confident that the word of God that we have in our hand is the complete, authoritative, inspired word. Lord, that is the outcome that I hope happens in our life. And may your word go forth and change our lives. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, go back to John chapter 10. Sorry, I'm bouncing around a little bit this morning. John chapter 10, we are... If you're new here, if you're visiting, we are in a second week of a really three-week series on bibliology or systematic theology. Uh, One of my convictions I have is every year to take the month of the year towards the beginning and really just unpack doctrine or systematic theology. And so this week we're unpacking bibliology, as we say, or or what is the Bible. And today we'll unpack what, excuse me, how the Bible was put together. So I I stumble over more words when I have too many things going on in my brain right this moment. But I would like to begin with a couple of quotes just to kind of paint the picture for our discussion this morning. A preacher says this, saying that I worship Jesus, but I don't believe the Bible, is really saying I worship a Jesus that I'm comfortable with because I created him with my own opinions, biases, and preferences. That's a fake Jesus. Anything we know about the real Jesus comes from the scripture. Another scholar says this, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in his word. 
Everyone is looking for a power in a program or a methodology or in a technique, in anything and everything, but that, but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused in the scriptures. That is really what I want to talk to you about today. Today we're talking about bibliology. Specifically, we're answering the question, how was the Bible put together? You know, how did the early church particularly, how did they settle on the 27 books of the New Testament? And what we see is the foundational truth that we find in John chapter 10 really is uh, the bottom or the root for how the Bible was actually put together. But before we go in too far, allow me to ask you the question. And I asked you the exact same question last week, is what is the Bible? What is the Bible. I'm going to ask you that. So it's going to be awkward in here for like 10 seconds for the first person to be bold enough to say it. Amen. Amen. What else? God's love letter to us. I heard another one. Truth. Inspired. What else is it? Any other bold people in the room? It is inerrant. It's authoritative. What else is it? Steopanustos. Nerd. It means God breathed out. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In, in, short, in, the, in short definition, the Bible is the word of the living God. Last week, we essentially defined what the Bible is. We had a short definition and then a long definition. The short definition is that the Bible is the word of the living God, the one true God that he preserved for us some 2,000 years later after it was complete. But then the longer definition that we saw last week is that the Bible is what? It is a collection of books written by God through men, verbal plenary inspiration of scripture to reveal what? His character, redemptive plan, instruction, and to help us know, love, and follow him fully. That's a lot. Okay. But today what I want to talk about is really how was the Bible put together? Because I believe that when you understand the methodology of the early church or how it was all put together, that when you combine last week with this week, then you will live with confidence that the Bible that you have in your hand truly is the inspired word of God. The Bible is what? It is 66 books. It's written in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors on multiple continents from multiple countries to multiple audiences. And God has preserved it in its inspired form for us today. But how did it come in this form? Today I want to give you four different evidences, four different proofs we would say that the Bible that we have before us is inspired, is the complete word of God. And what I hope today happens as a consequence of last week and this week, I hope it gives you confidence that the Bible that we have in our hand truly is the complete word of God. Confidence is a very important thing in life. Okay, let me ask you the question. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you have ever been really, 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 really good at something? Have I ever been really, really talented at something? Okay. So when you, when you encounter that task or, or that thing, 
What do you have? You have confidence. So when you are good at something, people come to you, ask for advice. People look to you to answer tough questions. I got an email yesterday of some uh, really brutally difficult questions that I tried to answer in a small and finite form. But confidence is a very important thing in life. Allow me to illustrate the importance of confidence. How many of you ever grew up playing baseball or softball? Okay. All right. Well, I did too, but I played eight years of baseball. You wouldn't be able to tell from my skill level. Um, I played eight years of baseball, and I was not very good. I would say I stunk at it. I was the kid that sat on the bench the whole game and was so bored one time that unwound an entire baseball while I was sitting there on the bench. I was the kid at the end of the bench that the coach felt bad for and put him in the outfield where no one would hit the ball. That was my life, okay? So, but I had no confidence. So what I did was I would just stand at the plate and what? I would just try to get walked. I would never swing. So my dad figured something out. He tried to figure out a way to get a 10-year-old boy to actually swing the bat. So what does any good parent do? Uh, he decided to bribe me, okay? And uh, he decided to bribe me that year, and he paid me 25 cents for a single, 50 cents for a double, 75 cents for a triple, a uh, dollar for a home run, and 10 cents if I swung out swinging, but nothing if I just stood there and struck out. I was a 10-year-old boy. What did I want more than probably anything else in the world? I wanted money. So you can imagine what happened to me. Uh, I actually started swinging the bat. And what do you know? I actually started hitting the ball, okay? It's a miracle how that works. The two are definitely directly correlated there. Um, but, so I just remember all of a sudden being bribed. It was a good bribe. Thank you, Dad. I got, I think, 14 bucks at the end of the season, okay? Um, it was a lot for a 10-year-old boy. Um, and I just remember starting to swing, starting to connect with the ball, and I walked out with confidence. And that confidence began to shape my buy-in. It shaped how I related to the team. It allowed me to be a leader on the team for that one good year in Little League that I had. Uh, confidence can make all the difference in the world. Let me say that. Confidence can make all the difference in the world. Let me ask you a yes or no question. Do you have confidence that the Bible you have in your hand is the complete, authoritative, inspired word of God? Let me ask you a second question. This is much more difficult. Why? Why? Why do you have confidence that the 66 books in here are the exact 66 books that God has set aside? I'm going to say something to you. Just like me, the more I swung, if that's even a word, um, the more confidence I, I had and I built, the more you learn, the more you study, the more you understand about your Bible, the more confident and competent you will be about its contents. So how how can we be confident in the Word of God? I'm just going to give you four different evidences that the Word of God that we have is the complete authoritative Word of God. Four different evidences. And the first and most foundational one is in John chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 
Okay, so the, the question I have, and many of you are probably asking, what in the world does John chapter 10 have anything to do with answering this question up front? How was the Bible put together? But it actually holds in and of itself one very important foundational truth to our answer to the question. John chapter 10, if you do not know, is, is, is really the parable of the good shepherd. It comes in the middle of John, the gospel of John. And the point of the gospel of John is what? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing in him, you may have life in his name. So the whole gospel of John is proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing in him, you may have life in his name. The whole book is really arranged on that one point. It's beautiful, brilliant literature. It's not a preacher's friend because it says the same thing again and again and again. But it's just seeking to prove that point. So what we see in John chapter 10 is the parable of the good shepherd. We have two different I am statements. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And as you remember, when we were walking through the gospel of John for two years or something, okay, by the end, what, what was the theme that we saw? The I am statements. Jesus is not just saying I am. He's not just being narcissistic. What is he being? He's equating himself to be fully divine, that he is Yahweh. Ego Amy, I am. He is saying that he is Yahweh, fully God, which is why the people throughout the Gospel of John tried to stone him. But today, what I really, I, I don't really want to focus so much on the shepherd. I want you to see the sheep. I want you to notice what characterizes the sheep. John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs in up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not recognize, do they not know the voice of strangers. So just for the sake of simplicity, who is the shepherd that we see in John chapter 10? I've already kind of answered that. The shepherd that we see in John chapter 10 is Jesus Christ. He equates himself to be the good shepherd. And what does it say about him? Not only does he enter by the door, by the way he's supposed to, in other words, he kind of does the right thing, but then he also knows his sheep, he calls them all by name, he leads the sheep, and he, the sheep follow him and not a stranger. This is a rabbit trail. I'm kind of off my notes at the moment. Um, if you feel like God has just forgotten you, that God is far. That he is absent. He's not. He is the good shepherd. I would encourage you to listen for his spirit and in his word for his voice. But notice with me, who are we in the parable? We are the sheep. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's names. These testify of me, but you did not believe because you are not my sheep. Wait, so, wait a sec. Verse 25 and 26. What, what is the one requirement to become a sheep of the shepherd? 
Did you catch that? So it says, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. The one thing that we must do in order to become a sheep, essentially, is to what? Is to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. Again, what does this have to do with why we are here? With the question we are seeking to answer. What do the sheep do? But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Bible was put together by recognizing inspired books. The sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. That's actually, that is the most foundational point this morning. There are two ways that the church really distinguished between inspired books and not inspired books. But most essentially, the Bible was put together by recognizing and I'm going to say not selecting inspired books. I think there's this misconception that, you know, in the early church, or maybe Emperor Constantine, he gathered with him all, all these letters from all these different people, and then he just kind of thumbed through them and just said, I want this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one. Now, these 27 books. That is not the case at all. The sheep recognized the voice of the shepherd, that they saw in the inspired text God's voice. The sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. They recognize the inspired books. They did not select the inspired books. Let me just say something. Every book that you have in your Bible contains the voice of the shepherd. Every single one of them. The early church, all they did was recognize inspiration. They did not select it. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you um, open the Bible and read it differently than every other book in the world? Anybody else relate to that one? Like, like when, you, when, I, when I read the Bible, like, like actually sincerely, you know, I'm, I'm listening for the shepherd's voice. I'm actually wanting to pay attention. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible out of a sense of obligation, we just kind of get bored with it. Anybody else have fallen asleep in their Bible reading time? Okay. And especially when you get to the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's just a little weird in there. But every single book, 66 books, all contain the voice of the shepherd. If you're listening for it, it reads differently. If you open your Bible and it reads just like every other book, then there's a problem. Can I just speak? There's two reasons why the Bible would read just like every other book. Number one, maybe you are a Christian and you're just not paying attention. Been there, done that. Or you are not one of his sheep. You have not believed in Jesus Christ. When I read the Bible, and I hope this is your... When I read the scripture, I see life. There is just something different about the 66 books that we have in the scripture that compares to every other book in all of literature. Amen? Anybody else relate to that one? 
that the Bible that we have is inspired of God. It is written by God through men. I'm going to do a quick caveat. Number one, I'm just going to say two things. Number one, we do not worship the Bible. That's a kind of a, a, a fine line between listening to the Bible, but we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God who wrote the Bible. And number two, when you read the scripture, I, I'm going to say this, all 66 books, even the weird ones, okay, are all inspired of God. So when you go into the scripture, remember that we do not worship the Bible, worship the God who wrote the Bible. But number two, when you read it, read it expectantly. Read it to listen to what God's message for us is. The Bible is the complete authoritative word of God. The Bible was put together by recognizing, not selecting the inspired, God-breathed-out books. A skeptic might say, well, what if they heard wrong? You know, what if what, if what we have, maybe they heard a different voice or something and they stashed a book in there that wasn't supposed to be there um fortunately and i have more proof for this fortunately the early church did not just say these have the voice and these don't but what they did was they did something called a canon and not a civil war canon but a canon everybody heard the canon of scripture the word canon means measure or measuring rod or standard or ruler so what the church did is as they began to receive the letters of Paul and Jude and John and all these letters, they began to recognize that there are some letters that contain the voice of God, that are inspired of God, that are written of him. And there are some letters that don't. But then what they do, to be certain, they put it into a canon, into a test. A test does not make you intelligent. It just reveals that you are intelligent. This just revealed the inspiration of Scripture. The tests they came with were threefold. The Bible, I'll say my point, the Bible was put together uh, by recognizing and canonizing the books. Keep in mind, you may or may not know this, is in the Bible itself. It says it very blatantly in First and Second Corinthians. But that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthian church. At least four. But only two of them are in our Bible, and only two of them are inspired. So how could the church distinguish, okay, this has the voice of God, and this doesn't? What they did was, to be certain, they put it through a test. Test number one, if you have your notes, was apostolic. Was essentially, who is the author of the book, of the letter? Every single New Testament book that you have was either written by an apostle or in a close associate of an apostle. All of them have apostolic authorship. The, you think about even the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He was a close associate of Paul. You think about the Gospel of Mark. He wasn't an apostle, but he was a close associate to Peter and to Paul. All 27 books have apostolic authorship. I mean, think about it. There's not one Bible or not one book in your New Testament that didn't have that criteria. There's no book written by Ignatius or Justin Martyr. All the scriptures have apostolic authorship. Number two test was, was this book widely accepted? Was the book widely accepted? Remember, 
what's the, what's the foundational truth that we're going with? That the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and recognize it and follow it. So if that were the case, then what should happen? That as these letters go throughout the Roman Empire, that various churches, a church in Egypt, a church in Greece, a church in Italy, a church in Turkey, a church in Antioch, all these different churches should be able all to recognize that, wait a second, this is the word of God and this isn't. They should all have wide acceptance. Multiple churches and multiple Christians should notice the inspiration of the word of God. And this happened. There's something in seminary world, this is where uh, you, you cross the line between like nerd and super nerd um, in seminary worlds. It's something called text criticism. I don't, I'm not going to get too far into these weeds. Okay, so, but, but it, it, I'm proving a point that a test was wide acceptance. That's where I'm going with this story. So when you're in seminary, you interact with a lot of these manuscripts. You act, interact with text criticism, okay? So the, the earliest New Testament manuscript we have is something called P52, Papyri 52. It is about this big. I thought about putting it on a slide up here, but it just didn't look good, so I didn't do it. Um, anyways, moving on. So P52 is about a fragment about this big, and it contains the Gospel of John, and it is the absolute oldest manuscript we have. It probably dates back to at least the first century. But then what I found very interesting, especially in this regard with wide acceptance, is are two different collections of books, P45 and P46. P45, I know, super teamite. So P45 dates back to at least the 3rd century, if not earlier, and it contains all of Matthew, all of Mark, all of Luke, all of John, and the book of Acts. What does that tell you? The sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd. That all these people from all these different churches started seeing the inspired text, started recognizing the voice of the shepherd, and started collecting them into essentially codexes, into books that they collected, showing that it's inspired. But then the other, the other manuscript I want to talk about is P46. Now, okay, if you forget this part, if you're tuning out, it's cool. Like, we'll pick you up later. Okay. But P46 is another collection of papyri of all the Pauline epistles. So every single, to my memory, every single epistle of Paul was collected in something called P46. What does that tell me? Is that it shows a wide acceptance that the church around the Roman world would begin to collect the letters, recognizing the voice of the shepherd, canonizing them, testing them. Is that apostolic authorship? Is it widely accepted? I mean, think about this. How did, how did that system work? So when Paul is, is sitting in prison, writing his letter to the church of Colossae, what happens? He probably, I think to my memory, he hands it to Onesimus, who Onesimus then travels all the way to Colossae, hands it to the church in Colossae as a letter. And I'm sure when they got a letter from Paul, what did they do? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I mean, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be like really excited. Okay, be shaky. Okay, what does Paul have for me today? So they would open it up and they would begin to recognize the voice of the shepherd. They began to put it through this test and they recognized inspiration. So then what would happen? People in the church would say, 
This is inspired of God. The church in Philippi has got to read this. The church in Ephesus has got to read this. So then they would copy by hand on paper, make a, make a copy of a photocopy. They didn't have that back then. And then they would send it to a messenger and he would take it to the church. And then the church would say, oh wow, this truly is inspired. And then they would make a copy and so forth and so on and so on and so on. So as the letters began to pass, the sheep heard the voice of the shepherd and they recognized it, they copied it, and then the letters of the Bible went all around the Roman world and it ended up in a collection of 27 books that we have in the New Testament. Test number one is apostolic. Test number two is wide acceptance. And then really, this one's a kind of gimme. Test number three is content. It's content. If you have your notes, it's content. What does the book say? And does what it says line up with all the other books that we know are inspired? Because think about it. I mean, there should be, if it's inspired of God, if it's written by God through men to reveal his character, his redemptive plan, and his instruction. If it truly is written by God, then it should share some themes. It should look semi-similar to all the other inspired books. I mean, think about if you um, decided to spend a month of your life reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy, okay? That, those, those books are long, okay? And then let's just say you, you read The Fellowship of the Ring, you read the whole thing, and then you get to book number two, The Two Towers, and all of a sudden Tolkien changes characters, changes themes, no longer is it Middle Earth, but Ancient Earth or whatever, I don't know, I'm just making this up at the moment. But if you, if you started reading the second book and it was all different, what would you say? It wasn't written by Tolkien, or this doesn't fit. Every single book in your Bible all has the same themes. Really boils down to three. Number one, to reveal God's character. Every book in your Bible reveals something about God. Number two, it reveals his redemptive plan. I mean, think about the book of Leviticus. How many of you have read the book of Leviticus lately? It's actually... Um, quite profound. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll notice even in the first one or two chapters that there is a theme that comes again and again and again. What is the theme of the first couple books, couple chapters of the book of Leviticus? It says, sacrifice a lamb without blemish. A lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish, again and again and again. When I was reading through the Bible last year, that's the first thing I noticed was that theme. And what is it talking about? It's really foreshadowing what? The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. So even in an ancient book called Leviticus, written by Moses, probably about 1500 years B.C., shares the same themes that we see in Second Corinthians, showing that both books are inspired and written by God. The content is the third is the third test that the early church used. Does it share similar content to the other books of the Bible? So the Bible was put together by recognizing and canonizing the inspired books. What other proof do we have? 
What other proof do we have that the Bible you have in your hand is the complete, authoritative, inspired word of God? Yeah. Man, I could go like, this could be like a, a year sermon series. <laughs> so I just got a tip on that one. But yeah, okay, we should talk about that sometime. Okay, but one of the things I'm going to, it, wait, if, if the Bible, what we have, 66 books, is the inspired word of God, and if God's word is complete, then what should happen? What should not happen? We should not be adding any books. Think about this. Your Bible has been essentially 67 books sent for 2,000 years. That's actually quite incredible. So the Bible was put together by recognizing, canonizing, inspired books affirmed by its solidity. That means it doesn't change. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Its solidity, it hasn't changed. It is complete and total. I mean, think about it. We're not wrestling. We haven't wrestled in the church for 2,000 years, essentially, about adding any books. It is complete. The Bible is, has been complete for 2,000 years. Are you tracking with me? How old is our U.S. Constitution? It's 250 years old. How many times have we changed it? 27 times. There are 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. I looked that up on Wikipedia. You can believe Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> so, there's, I'm pretty sure there's 27 though, amendments. A document as early as our own U.S. Constitution, written 250 years ago, has been changed 27 times. But the Word of God that is 2,000 years old has stayed 66 books. That tells you something, friends. That tells you all, I mean, that tells you that what we have is the complete, authoritative, inspired Word of God. I mean, there are a lot of heretics in the church today, amen? Man, just go on YouTube, and you can find all you want on there. I mean, it's crazy. People go on Larry King Live and, and shy away from the gospel. I mean, we have, there is a very famous preacher. I won't even tell you the state. Uh, there is a very famous preacher in the United States that on his website, he says he is a modalist. What is that? We'll talk about that later. But the Bible stands the test of time. It hasn't changed. It is stable. Matthew five seventeen through 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. There he is listing the Old Testament books. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of these least of these commands and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of God. It is amazing to me. This is proof that the Bible truly is complete because it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. But what's the final proof? There is a fourth piece of evidence that tells me what we have is correct. The Bible is complete because God is truly sovereign. Do we really think that sheep, bah, okay, that sheep could mess up the word of a sovereign, true, living God? 
I find that to be so narcissistic if we do. Because that tells me that what? That I, in a sense, am more powerful than God. If I think that mankind could truly mess up the word of God, then I have more problems than just my foundation of the Bible. But I don't understand God correctly. Amen? That I do not, I do not believe he truly is sovereign. Isaiah 40 verse 12 is a, one of the passages. Isaiah 40 in general is a great passage on the sovereignty of God. Verse 12 says this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span? And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. And weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. A God that can do that can certainly preserve his word in complete authoritative inspired form for us here in 2023. In all honesty, um, I was thinking about this sermon all week long and beyond. Um, That's enough for me. This right here, I don't even have to have the rest of this. This is enough for me. It's enough. Because my view of God is that he is sovereign and he is in control over all things. And that he has preserved his word for us, even here today in 2023. What is the Bible? It is a collection of books written by God through men to reveal his character, redemptive plan, and instruction to help us know, love, and follow him fully. And how was the Bible put together? The Bible was put together by recognizing, not selecting, and canonizing the inspired books affirmed through the Bible's solidity and God's sovereignty. Put it all together. The Bible is the word of the living God. Amen? The Bible is the word of the living God. Amen? That's what I'm going to do. Um, This is going to be a little socially awkward, and it's cool. We're cool. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, man. We're part of the the body. It's cool. We can do something awkward. That's what everybody's thinking at this moment. This is what I want you to do. I want you, if you have your Bible, grab it, okay? A hard copy Bible. If you don't have a hard copy Bible, there's a black one right in front of you. If you don't even have that... Uh, it's cool. Just hold up your phone. So there you go. Um, and I'll see if you've been paying attention. Um, so grab a Bible. This is what I want you to do. I want you to hold it up. This is the authoritative, complete, inspired word of God. And all God's people say, Amen. That should create confidence history proves it god's sovereignty proves it the early church proves it prophecies prove it all this stuff prove that what we have is truly the word of god so this is this is this is the application i have for you today since the bible is the complete authoritative inspired word of god my application for you is to trust it is to trust it you know, last week we talked about since the Bible is, the, is a book written by God through men, that we should side with God and the scriptures over our culture. The reason I said that was because we face in our culture this moving standard of morality in our culture. Amen. It's, I never thought 
in all my life that we would be arguing over the things we argue in our culture. It is so bizarre, but it's really not bizarre because we are broken and depraved and living in darkness. Amen? It shouldn't be that surprising to us. So in response to the word of God being written by God through men, that we should side with the Bible and not with culture. But today, I just want you to walk away confident that you can truly trust the word of God. And that the more you swing, and the more you know, and the more you learn about the word of God, the more confident you will be. So trust the word of God, because what we have is the word of the one true living God. Before I close, real quick, if you do not know Christ Jesus as Savior, if you do not have a relationship with him, if you have never been born again, we were talking about my foundations of missional living this morning in our class that I think a lot of people are deceived. They, they either trying to live the Christian life and aren't saved or some Christians are saved and really don't bear fruit, which I don't know if they're truly Christians, but moving on, I won't get into that theological debate right here, right now. But if you have never been born again, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know where you stand, if you don't know where you would go when you die, And Jesus Christ, he came, he paid for my sin in full on the cross to satisfy God the Father's justice, just demands for payment for sin. And Jesus, the Father through Jesus, gave to me eternal life as a gift by his grace, that if I would believe in him, that I shall be saved. If you've never come to terms with Jesus... If you've never had self-examination, if you've never believed in Christ and been born again, then today is a great opportunity to do so. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you've never believed and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now is a good time to do it. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just uh, how the Bible stands the test of time. It's incredible how you orchestrated the scripture and how you led your sheep to recognize and canonize uh, the, the Bible books that we have so that we can arrive here today in 2023 with the complete authoritative inspired Bible. What an incredible gift and treasure that you've given to us. And Lord, may we just look for the treasures within. Thank you for this morning and thank you for this church. And thank you for their desire to know the truth and to live the truth. And Lord, I pray that we would walk by your spirit. We will be led by your spirit. And Lord, thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.